This is The Syllabus, a podcast about politics and higher education from InsideHigherEd.com and American Jewish University. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, and this week I talk with Danielle Hawley. She is the 20th president of Mount Holyoke College, and we have such a fun half an hour talking about some really, really, really interesting issues. She talks to me about why my daughter might want to attend a women's college. She talks about what it means that there are self-identified men now welcome on the campuses of women's colleges. She talks about the gender diversity movement and moving beyond the gender binary in this day and age. She talks about what the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling means for a college like hers and how they're going to keep and retain and attract people from historically underrepresented groups at a time when the explicit use of affirmative action is no longer permitted by law. Uh, But, you know, more than any of that, it's just a really fun half hour with a really, really important person in the world of higher education. And I invite you to listen to this half hour of me talking with Mount Holyoke College President Danielle Hawley. Here she is. President Danielle Hawley of Mount Holyoke College, thank you for joining me on the syllabus. Thank you for having me. You're a new college president, right? It's been six months now? It is six months. I arrived at Mount Holyoke on July 1st. How do you like it? There's probably only one answer to that, but... (laughs) You know, I love it. Mount Holyoke is such an incredibly special place. It's We have an incredible legacy, and I think especially around women in STEM, where we still produce the most women for PhDs in life sciences in the country over the last 50 years. It's an incredible place to be. We're going to take a little tour in the next few minutes over just stuff that's in the news and that's been in the news for the last year. So the first thing is, because I have someone on the line who's not only a college president, but also a legal scholar, as you understand it, how do your college's admission procedures have to change because of the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action? Yeah, I think the Supreme Court ruling was, you know, it's interesting because the last paragraph of the opinion by Justice Roberts, I think, gives gives a little gray where I think many predicted that the uh, opinion would be black and white. But we know from the Supreme Court opinion that it is now uh, in violation of the Constitution to use race as a factor um, in admissions in the way that it had been done under traditional affirmative action programs. I think the gray area is the last paragraph where Justice Roberts essentially says, this doesn't keep anyone from telling their individual stories. So if I want to talk about, and I think these were uh, answers really prompted by Justice Jackson and Justice Kagan's questions, I think, in the oral argument. And they were asking, you know, are people required to hide their race from their individual personal stories? And the answer from the opinion is no, right? So if someone wants to talk about coming from a family of sharecroppers in North Carolina, Black sharecroppers, and what it would mean to them to go to a place like University of North Carolina, students are still allowed to talk about that. And the college can consider the way that their individual backgrounds may have an impact on their ability to contribute to the college community. What they can't do is to consider their race as a group, as a reason for decision-making. So I think most colleges have worked around uh, developing new um, procedures, which include not asking about race or masking the race of applicants at the time of decision-making but recruitment efforts on the front end and then unmasking race after decisions are made to try to recruit on the back end to still have racial diversity. Do you expect the number of Black students enrolled at Mount Holyoke in a given class to go down starting next fall? 
I think for all colleges and universities, similar to what we saw in California, Michigan, other places that had ballot initiatives that ended affirmative action in those states, what we saw is not just a decrease in Black students, but also a significant decrease in Latinx students. We are working very hard on both ends, on both recruitment strategies for Black and and Latina students, and also on the back end eventually when we make our admissions decisions to recruit students into our class who are from a diverse group of backgrounds. So we're hoping not to see that, but I think it would be hard to say that we won't because that is the history of what's happened when affirmative action has been outlawed. I mean, it's an interesting conundrum because I believe you're in the fall of 2023, about 7% um, of your students were black. And according to your, the statistics on your website, if it remains at 7% in the incoming class, there will be suspicion that in fact, you have sussed out who's black and then the admissions office has an implicit or explicit order or policy to keep it at about 7 I think Ed Bloom and others have a very you know cynical view of this, which is that schools were making decisions solely on the basis of race, which I think is absolutely untrue, right? And so I think the, of course, I think for schools that do not see their percentage of Black or Latinx students decline, Ed Bloom and others may look at that and question the practices. But I think that so much of those accusations are built on false premises about how admissions works and what is the intention of the admissions process that I just, I don't think that there will be much there for our college or any other college in which we don't see the numbers shift very much. And in fact, you know, it's just difficult to predict at this moment. Everyone's adopting such different policies and how they're going about it and how many resources they're putting into it this year, right? So I think people are kind of waiting and seeing this year what's going to happen and then trying to make decisions about do we double down on recruitment or do we double down on recruitment on the back end, but I think it would be hard to see those numbers replicated. What numbers replicated? The same percentages in the incoming class? Yeah. I just think there's going to be some shift. But okay. But there are a lot of colleges. I mean, some of the wealthiest, most elite colleges, I'm thinking places like Harvard and Yale, which have sort of infinite money for financial aid and for admissions outreach. They've been at about 12% black, which is the percentage of blacks in the population for a while now. They weren't in the 90s, but in the early aughts, they moved to about, you know, 11 to 13% Black and have pretty much stayed there. Mount Holyoke's not there. It's at more like 7%. But it does seem that in admissions, there are target numbers that some schools are trying, it would seem, to have the number of Blacks in their freshman class that they ha- that there are in the American population. Are you saying that there are no aspirational percentages for the class? No one ever talks about that? And honestly, I've worked in admissions. I mean, I've worked on admissions, been on admissions committees, multiple universities, and I've just never seen that. And again, doesn't mean that on the recruitment side at the back end, right? Because I think when you shape a class at the admission decision, that's very different from after you've admitted everyone to the class, you realize where you are and you say, okay, yes, we feel like we're most diverse at this level. And then after the admissions decision is made, to try to make special pushes to recruit students in who best reflect those percentages. But that's very different, I think, than having those goals at the point of the admissions decision. And at least I personally have never witnessed that in the admissions process at the decision-making point itself. So 
Tell me a little bit about the the back end recruitment after the admissions. If you admit a class that's say five percent black and ninety five percent not, but you want to yield more black students to keep the numbers about where they were, are there then policies or efforts that are supposed to yield a higher percentage among admitted blacks than than among admitted others, so that the numbers of incoming students are higher than the numbers of admitted students? No, I don't think they're different things. I just think that sometimes we are we identify the things that tend to work well. For example, we'll do phone calls for everyone. But my previous institutions and at Mount Holyoke, I haven't experienced it as much as Mount Holyoke because I'm new, but every new admit will get a phone call. Sure. When it comes to minority admissions, and again, not just black admissions, but sure. Latinx, Asian admissions, et cetera, we will typically have graduates or current students from that group or faculty members who will reach out and call people who have been admitted. So someone may say, I'm a black student from Texas. How will I fit in at Mount Holyoke? We have a student from Texas, black student from Texas, call them because we want students to feel comfortable on campus and to know that they'll fit in. Are there any changes to the application that were made in response to the Supreme Court decision? Yes. And I think most of it is on the technical ends. For example, gathering demographic information is something that we would typically gather and then have access to at the time of the admissions decision. Now all of that is repressed in the system. So you can't even see it. None of our admissions people can see it when applications come in. And that's the main thing. It's just repressing that demographic information for everyone. But you didn't add any essays that were designed to help students signal what race they're from or their background? No, they weren't intended to signal what race they're from. I think we changed one question. It was very similar to our previous question, but it asked more pointedly, when you come to Mount Holyoke, do you understand the Mount Holyoke mission? And how are you committed to living out the Mount Holyoke mission? And so at Mount Holyoke, we have a special mission. We're a gender diverse women's college, and we believe that we train students to become culturally competent leaders. That's what our mission statement says. So we want to understand how students, and again, a student can answer that question regardless of race, how they are committed to the Mount Holyoke mission. So is there any attempt by the admission officers when looking at applications to figure out the race of the student? No, they that would really be don't want to know. Unconstitutional. So, no, we don't. I think the Supreme Court has now told us what the law is. We may not like the law, but I think our position is, and I think that this would be the position of all colleges and universities, the same as Title IX or the same as the ADA or the same as securities regulations related to our investments. We are absolutely committed to following the law, right? While I deeply disagree with the law and I find the, the Supreme Court's opinion to me as abhorrent. I would never, and I don't think any of our administrators at any college or university would try to subvert that law through any means. Is there any possibility, for example, if through the admissions outreach and all the back end recruitment and outreach, if your numbers of historically underrepresented groups stay the same or even go up, is there some possibility you would reconsider your opposition to the court's decision if it turns out that you can get rid of race-based affirmative action in the way they want, but keep the numbers very robust, would that suggest that we didn't need race-based affirmative action or didn't need it in its current form? At least to me, it wouldn't change my opinion. I think they're fundamentally wrong that uh, affirmative action is in violation of the 14th Amendment. So regardless of the outcome, at least it would not change my opinion on the law. But as a cultural matter, it's such a polarizing issue, right? If it turns out that we end up getting to similar results in terms of diversity without explicitly taking race into account in a way that upsets lots of people 
including the people who filed the lawsuit. Would that turn out to be a positive development? I don't think so. I don't think that trying to ignore the significant differences in our country on the basis of the history of race in this country and the continuing ongoing structural racism and structural racial inequality in our country, I think it's harmful to us overall as a country and as a people, regardless of outcome, right, to pretend that our admission system was race neutral in any way prior to affirmative action, to pretend that our country and our laws are still not full of racial inequality. I think all of that is an, is an attempt to erase what has happened in this country in terms of our racial history. It's an attempt to erase the real negative consequences of what it means to be a racial minority in this country that's ongoing. And so, I, yes, I think there's significant harm, regardless of what the on-the-ground outcomes are to the way that the Supreme Court wrote about the 14th Amendment, the history of race, and they really mischaracterize the nature of affirmative action, I think, in a way that will be seen when 50 years is as harmful as some of our most infamous decisions on the basis of race. You mentioned a moment ago that Mount Holyoke College is a gender diverse women's college. Imagine the most skeptical person you can, the person who says, wait a second, there are women and there are men. What does it mean for a school to be? gender diverse, but a women's college. Or maybe it's not the most skeptical person. Maybe it's someone who says there are lots of genders, perhaps infinite numbers. But if you're a women's college for women, what does it mean to have other genders there? Explain what that means to somebody who doesn't understand. This is a great question because this is a question I probably get the most often uh, when I tell people that I'm the president of Mount Holyoke College. Many of them want to ask immediately about our admissions policy um, and are interested in what it means to be a gender diverse women's college. So I've gotten a lot of experience explaining um, what this means. So for us, it means that our admissions policy, we are open to anyone who identifies as a cisgender woman, as a trans woman, or someone who is assigned female at birth and then transitions to male. So those are all of the categories um, that we accept. And what we consider it, I think, and how I see it, is that when Mary Lyon founded Mount Holyoke College in 1837, she had a vision of who women were in the world that went completely against the gender stereotypes of the time. She believed that women should be educated through higher education, that it was possible for women to be unmarried and still have a very fulfilled life, she believed that educating women would help democracy and help the world. And I really see our admissions policy today as a continuation of that kind of bold thinking about gender. We don't believe in gender stereotyping or conform to the ideas that tell us that there's only one way to be a woman. There's only one way to be a man. It's only how you were assigned at birth. Shrugging off those gender stereotypes and conventions about gender is a continuation of the bold thinking that Mary Lyon had 186 years ago. So I really see it as a continuous process. And I think it's also a place where people who are trans men feel safe to be. Many students who may have never felt safe anywhere in their high schools, elementary schools, et cetera. And that's what women's colleges were again designed to do was to provide uh, that space for people to receive an education that is highly you know, rigorous and excellent and at the same time not be punished because of their gender. 
What about women who say they want to attend a school that is women only? Mount Holyoke is now a school that has men, correct? We have trans men. Yes, we do. Yeah. And, you know, and if one honors their self-identity and talks about them as men, as one ought, it's now a school with men. And there used to be more schools that were just for women. Is there a cost there or is there a loss to people who want a women's only space? You know, I find that the students of this generation do not think in those binaries, I think, in the way that previous generations were. I would think to a prospective student who said, in my conception of gender, I only want to go with, to school with people who I recognize in my worldview as women, that Mount Holyoke wouldn't be the right place for them, right? Again, Is there a school for them? Believe, we don't share that are there, view. Are there schools for them? I don't know. I don't think any of the women's colleges now would probably, I don't think someone with that worldview would probably be very comfortable at any of the women's colleges, even though uh, many of the women's colleges do not have our policy on accepting trans men. But you don't think there's any role left for the women's only college? It should just be consigned to the past. When I look at our women's colleges and having been on the campus of many of them, again, I think the students of this generation do not identify with the binary and gender in the way that we did. So there are lots of people who are on our women's colleges campuses, the same as there are lots of people on our co-ed campuses who do not subscribe anymore to a gender. So you would be on every, any women's college campus that you went on today, you would see people who would identify as non-binary, for example. Mm. And I think that there's probably not a place for that in the sense that it's not something that's in demand. Do we know that? I have daughters and my daughters have friends and I've sort of overheard a lot of conversation in their generation. And I think there is a diversity of views on this. And one can imagine high school girls, women, who would like to attend a women's only college, who probably aren't going to stick their neck out and attack Mount Holyoke or Smith or the schools for doing what they're doing. But it's not my sense that this was a demand side initiative. It was a supply side one where the colleges decided it doesn't fit our politics anymore. And I guess I just wonder if they've all kind of changed on this. Is there a student population that's not being served? And I guess I hear you saying, no, that in this generation, they don't exist. I, yeah, I don't. No, because I think most people who feel that way would prefer a co-ed institution. I think if they see gender in the binary in that way, I would think that most of those students would probably prefer a co-ed environment. And I just think on the ground, it's bared out that most of the students who are seeking out education at what were traditionally the women's colleges in a very traditional way, most of those people have ideas that are about empowering people through gender. And so that to me means that most of those people embrace the notion that gender is not on the binary and that there are many ways to express gender in a way that is affirming and empowering. Friends, if you're enjoying this half hour of me talking with Danielle Holly, if you think this is the kind of important conversation that we should keep doing, please help us by spreading the word. You can go to whatever podcast platform you use and Give us a good rating if you're so inclined. Share us on social media or in emails or in paper notes scribbled on fool's cap stationery. However you want to do it, spread the word about The Syllabus, a podcast from InsideHigherEd.com and American Jewish University. Also, if you want to read the articles coming from InsideHigherEd.com, go to their website, InsideHigherEd.com. And if you want to take free classes with American Jewish University, go to aju.edu slash open. That's the website of the Office of Open Learning. It's aju.edu slash open. Has there been any uptick in anti-Semitism at Mount Holyoke since October 7th? Oh, absolutely. We have a very small activist population, 
unlike a lot of schools, you know, right down the street, we have UMass Amherst, a very large school. They had an actual physical attack on their campus. They had 55 people arrested outside the president's office. We just haven't seen that kind of activity on our campus. But I have to say yes to the question because I meet with my Jewish students. I go to vigils with them. I sit and talk to them individually. And my Jewish students are telling me that they are experiencing anti-Semitism on our campus. And unfortunately, the only way I can answer that question is yes. I think our responsibility is to counter with everything that we have. We have to do programming. We have to provide care and support for our students. We're lucky enough to have a Jewish chaplain on our campus. We have to partner with alums. So how do you as a college administrator draw the line between criticism of Israel or of Zionists and that would be protected as free speech and the kind that isn't? What's something that you can say and what's something you can't say? So I have not had to actually make that decision in real life. I think because most of the things that were being chalked, put on flyers that would be considered to be at the center of that debate between free expression and anti-Semitic hate speech language, most of those, we saw that they were in violation of college policy, meaning that they were put up on flyers that were unauthorized. They were done in chalkings that were unauthorized. So I didn't ever have to this semester, thankfully, engage in that kind of, I think, content kind of regulation and questioning. I think the hardest ones on any campus are the ones that ADL has deemed are anti-Semitic language. So obviously the main one is from the river to the sea. And then on the other hand, we're getting feedback from attorneys, et cetera, that this is contested free speech. And so to me, that has been the hardest one. I meet with college and university presidents all the time. We've all taken different approaches to that particular Phrasing, I think how I've talked to students and student activists who I know are using that language and faculty who may be using it is I ask people to recognize the humanity of other people, right? So if I'm saying something that I know makes someone else feel that their humanity is diminished, I think the question has to be, why are we engaging in that kind of speech? Trying to take it beyond just freedom of expression, but to asking community If we are in community with each other, what is our obligation to each other in community? And I think the obligations that we have to each other in community would demand that we are cognizant of things that other people may say, okay, to me, that is hate. Liz McGill and Claudine Gay, obviously, were asked questions, you know, pretty loaded, tendentious questions, right? right? Trying to trap them into a certain position. And I know how I would have answered those questions. They were asked about expressions like intifada or from the river to the sea, which they said, which Elise Stefanik implied were calling for the genocide of Jews. And she clearly wanted them to say that they would ban those expressions or discipline students who used them. Would you ever discipline students who use those expressions in some forum? I don't think our student code of conduct would discipline a student just for using, just for expression, right? That's not targeted. So we would obviously punish the definition of hate speech. And the change between the definition of hate speech, of course, is that it's targeted at someone, right? At an individual person. So if, for example, that was written outside at an individual or even if it were a small group of people. But for example, if that flyer with that language was put on the door of a Jewish student or was put on a house called the Elliott House, that's our interfaith house, if it was put in the area that our JSU uses, of course, to me, that would be clearly... Uh, something that we would have to prosecute and we so, would prosecute so under the student code of conduct. From the river to the sea on a poster at a march is protected free speech. 
but put up posters on the Jewish Students Union's meeting space or a Jewish student's dorm room is potentially hate speech that could get a student disciplined. Is that a fair summation? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So if you were Liz McGill or Professor Gay at Harvard, how should they have answered the question they were asked? I'm sure every college president in the country thought about this. What would I have said? Yeah. And I think number one is when you testify in Congress and everyone says this about testifying in Congress, again, you can be asked questions. It doesn't mean that you're required to answer them in the way that they were asked. So I think that's the first thing is this notion of trapping people like it's a cross-examination in court, I think is just something that I would have had to reject as a notion. If you're asking me questions that you're trying to get a soundbite out of and have me say things that are not what the actual state of facts are on the ground, I'd have to reject the notion or the premise of the question and tell you what the facts are. So I think that's the, and I don't know if I would have done any better. Those are two of the most respected leaders in higher ed. Liz McGill, obviously brilliant legal scholar, dean of Stanford Law School, clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I don't think anyone could do better. I think the only difference after, in hindsight, as I watch them, I think I would start and preface every question with, I absolutely stand against anti-Semitism. And I and my university will do everything we can to root out anti-Semitism on our campuses. Under our current code of conducts, here's what would happen. But you have to start with, and I think that's the way that they feel. I know oh, that's the way um, I think that they're both anti- of those leaders I think they're feel. both anti-Semitism. I think they are not anti-Semites. Oh, absolutely. What about this? Why didn't they say, first of all, Representative Stefanik, that's a really unfair question. I feel like you're trying to trap me. Obviously, I'm against anti-Semitism and I'm against genocide. But there are certain things that students can say that some people interpret perhaps fairly as genocidal that are nevertheless protected free speech because we're really all about free speech, even when it's ugly or something like that. But you have to start with that. What you said was so important as the beginning part of the question, right? Beginning part of your answer has to be you're trying to trap me. I can't participate in this conversation in the way that you're trying to design it. I stand against anti-Semitism. So does my university. And we will do everything that we can to root out anti-Semitism. What about the criticism, which, by the way, I think is fair. I'll come clean here that having allowed speakers to be canceled or deplatformed or marginalized for certain politically unpopular views having to do with, say, affirmative action or trans issues or abortion and so forth in the past, that now to be free speech absolutist when it comes to the feelings of Jews is a bit suspect. Is there something to that claim? I'm skeptical about whether cancel culture. Yeah, but there's some pretty clear stories. People like there's some pretty clear stories coming out of MIT and Harvard. People like Amy Wack, yeah, are still on the faculty at Penn and Liz McGill. So I don't know. I you know I've been thinking a lot about that. I think you know having been a professor now for 20 plus years, multiple universities, I attended two others. I think that so much in the college and universities are becoming like tobacco companies. Our reputations are literally, there's not a lot of trust in what we do. I think that's intentional undermining, but it's very difficult to see the industry that I love so much kind of really lose credibility in the way that it has. Because I think in the past, people would have said, no, colleges are getting it about right, you know, in terms of how we're treating free speech, et cetera. And I think now there just seems to be a lack of trust on the left and the right about how we're handling these issues. Isn't the way to go just a kind of free speech absolutism? Like you want to come here with your racism, your anti-Semitism, your transphobia, as long as you're standing somewhere and not attacking anyone physically, we're a free speech zone. We don't have to like what you're saying, but like we're just all in for free speech. Wouldn't that be simple and clean and 
have an integrity to it. I, I am mystified that more college presidents don't go that route. I did a, a great symposium at Hofstra around free speech issues on campus, and I was talking to a former dean of Yale Law School about this. And when I was at Yale in the 90s, remember the law school had the free yes. speech wall. It was pieces of paper. They scra- they taped up and paper. That, sure. Yes. And so you could put them up there. It could say anything that you wanted. And I think at first when we were there, you weren't even required to sign it. Eventually, I think they changed the rules that you had to sign it. But I honestly, I was fine in that environment, right? It did not hurt my education. I felt that it helped me in many ways. It hurt my spirit a lot. As I walked by going to the library to see racist things written on that board, it opened my mind to the fact that people, even as well-educated as people who went to Yale, could be full of hate and racism. After reading that wall, I understood that a lot more. So in that way, it helped educate me to the ways of the world. Spiritually, it made me feel that I was still thought of as less than, that there were people in the environment who believed I shouldn't be there. There was a lot of harm to that to me as a person in some ways, but not to me in terms of, and again, it was a temporary harm. It was harm that I felt in the short term, but over the long term, it got me to a place where I feel like it was good for me in my education, helped me understand the world and what I was up against. I mean, I sympathize with that a little bit, but it's impossible on our campuses. We already have seen some violence on our campuses, et cetera. I think Allowing free speech absolutism in an era in which I just think our populations are used to more protection than what free speech absolutism would lead to on our. But does it? I don't think it serves them well. I mean, shouldn't we turn back the clocks and say, guys, it's free speech time, and if not, there are other schools for you? Would that be great? I don't know. It would make things a lot easier for college and university administrators, which is why I I agree that I can't believe we haven't seen anyone do that. You wouldn't likely keep your job for a very long time if you were a college or university administrator and took up that policy just because everyone on every side is calling for us to do the opposite, right? No one wants to, whether it's parents or alums or current students or faculty, everyone wants us to figure out how do you stop people from saying things that they don't agree with or worse than they don't agree with them, but fall into what they view as some type of so, bias. So this ship has sailed. My vision of returning to the 90s when people, as long as you weren't physically hurting anyone or deliberately provoking a specific act of violence against a specific person or building, you were protected. You could say what you want. And that was part of the culture. And people got by. It was educationally a robust way to go to school. Never coming back, you're saying. It's just... We've grown away from it. No, everyone. If I can tell you, I have been berated on every side the of left, this over the, the last right. two months. And the one thing that everyone agrees to is they would love to see me regulate speech in some way. That's the one thing that everyone from the left to the right, whether you are whatever side you're on, everyone wants to see other people be told what to think, how to think. And I'm not being derisive of that. These are real concerns, right? But Everyone on all sides wants to, and they also want to force me to say things too. I was going to, I was going to say they want a bigger administrative state, a bigger bureaucracy, a heavier handed president. I mean, I would be derisive about this. This sounds like, why don't they want to be adults who have less interference from administrators and bureaucrats? Why does everyone, the kids and the parents want a heavier hand, more discipline, more interference, more, more bureaucracy? This strikes me as a kind of retreat from freedom almost. 
I think we live in a much more, I was thinking about this. I was like, what's different between this generation and ours? I think that they're inundated with more. So for example, when our students currently are experiencing a crisis like the one that we're experiencing at the moment, we could simply leave it in the newspaper. We could leave it in books. We could leave it at the conversation table in the dining hall. But what they're experiencing is much more immersive. They're on social media all the time. They're watching it on YouTube. I've had students who told me they want to study, but they can't get away from this. They can't put down their phones. And so I think that's the difference is everyone is looking for more protection because there's so much more that is inside of them and that they're hearing and feeling and experiencing. It's just completely different from when we went to school and you could get some distance from the things that hurt you the most. No yeah, distance. it was awesome. It's like a news bubble. You spent four years just hanging out with friends and not knowing that there was news. I remember when Rabin was assassinated and it pierced the news bubble. All of a sudden people were talking about a current events thing. Two final questions, One, both inspired by my own trips with my pre-college daughter. One is, I want you to sell her on a women's college. And the second is, and you can take these in any order, the second is every school we looked at, I'm talking about maybe 10 reasonably elite, small and medium-sized colleges, every single one, and you did this too, told me how great they were at STEM. And my daughter finished every tour and we looked at each other and said, no tour guide has ever said, here are the books I'm reading, here are the languages I'm studying. It's all in for STEM all the time, which by the way, I think is one of the problems with the current Gaza-Israel discourse is they don't know which river and which sea. You're talking about people who have no idea about history. They don't know 1948, 1960. They don't know the humanities at all. Why is everyone all in for STEM? So question number one, sell my daughter in a women's college. Number two, why isn't everyone saying more English majors? Why are the English majors, why are the numbers crashing? And why do colleges seem complicit and even encouraging of that trend? Oh, two great questions. So first, I think selling your daughter on a women's college. I think what I found working in universities and colleges that have a clear mission. So this is Howard and now Mount Holyoke is that you can be much more focused on the things that are important to the students who attend. And so you know what those things are. You can focus much more closely. And many times our identity, when we go to places of higher education, is thought to be something that's restricting us, keeping us down, is something that makes us less worthy. In the women's college environment, what I find is that who we are is actually empowering. So there is nothing that we can't do. And I think that's also why we lead with STEM, because our outcomes are so different than what you get at co-ed colleges. We have to highlight those things because you would not think that schools as small as Mount Holyoke or Smith or Wellesley would have the kind of outcomes that they have. But it does diminish the humanities. You know, I'm a huge proponent of the humanities. We were both history Indeed. majors, you know, and I tell people all the time, like, for example, in a crisis like this one. Probably the thing that has made the biggest mark on me is I took a history course with Yehuda Bauer called The History of Antisemitism. And that course has made such a huge impact on my life from then until now. I would have never experienced that if I hadn't been a history major. So I think it's critically important. And obviously, we think that what makes Mount Holyoke distinctive and excellent is the fact that we have so many people who do both. Right. But I bet your humanities majors numbers are way down over 10 years ago. They are. I think what's, there's a lot of pressure. Right. And I would say, here's the pressure. When you have college costs that the way that they are now, very few, I think, parents are supporting humanities as majors because 
they want to see ROI. They want to see that return on investment. So to me, what that means is not that we run away from the humanities, but you have to double down on career exploration and career readiness. We are doubling and tripling down on it, demonstrating to students and parents why majoring in the humanities is not just good, but will be the foundation for a good life. Man, parents suck. It's always the parents' fault, I think. I'm not putting those words in your mouth. I'm telling you. <laughs> we no, love the, the parents. parents are always telling their kids to major in computer <laughs> science and not read literature. Parents are the worst. Danielle Holly, thank you so much for talking with me. It's great to talk to you, Mark. This has been a production of American Jewish University and InsideHigherEd.com. The syllabus comes to you every week or mostly thanks to the work of me. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer. And you can write to me at mark.oppenheimer at aju.edu, but also the hard work of Doug Letterman at Inside Higher Ed and our production team of Alyssa Silva, Sherry Hirely, Tessa Grasso, Amelia Hamill, and all the gang at American Jewish University. For more on our course offerings, go to aju.edu slash open. And please don't fall asleep tonight. Don't even let your head hit the pillow until you have subscribed and rated the syllabus.